verse 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this special time to be together. We thank you for the gathering of the saints, for the assembly and the congregation of those who know you, and what an awesome thing it is to gather in your name, Lord. Thank you for the singing today and for giving us hearts to praise you, Lord. We thank you for opening our eyes so that we can know you through your Son and that we can praise you. And Lord, thank you for this special time to turn to your word. I pray that you would open our understanding, that you would give us ears to hear. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to listen as we ought to listen to your word and that we would grasp what you have to tell us out of this passage, Lord. For you have something to tell us out of this passage, very important. Thank you for inspiring Paul to write this. And Lord, thank you for the truth that truly sets us free and gives you all the glory. May, us, may we grasp it this morning as we contemplate this passage. Lord, may we understand by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Well, I'm sure that we've all marveled at those moments or those events in the past that have had a profound impact upon our individual lives. You know what moments and events I'm talking about? Those moments and events where you marvel and think, what if that hadn't have happened, right? You ever marvel about those events in your own personal history? What if that hadn't have happened? How different things would have been? Or I wouldn't even have been here. These are momentous moments. We have lots of events that happened in our past, but some stand out as particularly momentous. Just to give you an example, one in my life that I find momentous, when my dad was in his 20s, he became a new Christian, and uh, my dad played the classical guitar. He was a new Christian. He was just getting into the you know, Christian fellowship. He was in Toronto, and he, he was just... Uh, getting into that whole scene 
and he loved to play the cl classical guitar. He would often just sit in the hallways of the apartment he lived at playing the classical guitar. And one day a friend came up to him and he had been hearing him play the guitar. He said Manuel, or he was called Nunu, Nunu in those days, which is his middle name, Nunu. That's <laughs> uh, Portuguese, my dad. He said, I, I really like your playing. Would you, would you uh, be willing to record a, a soundtrack for a, a school project I'm doing? I'm making a, a documentary. Would you play a, a background music for that? So, sure. So back in the 70s and 60s, you know, they put it on whatever recording device they had back then. I don't even know. <laughs> and uh, my dad recorded it and never thought anything of it. It was just for this friend's uh, project. And quite a lot of time went by. My dad was mixing with other Christians. And, and eventually, uh, there was a music ministry that was being formed. And they were trying to gather musicians to travel all over the world, basically, and, and praise God and proclaim the gospel through song and dance and things like that. And so they were saying, if anyone is a musician, come and join. But if, in order to join, you're going to have to audition. And to audition, you have to have a recording of your music. And at that, and this was quite a while after my dad recorded that thing for his, for his friend. And so he didn't think it, he had any recording, and so he actually put it off. My dad was quite shy. He wasn't really a go-getter, so he wanted to join, but he, he actually just put it off. And there was a due date, and he didn't do anything about it. And the due date kept getting closer and closer until finally it was right at the end. The, the due date had finally come. He had resigned. I wasn't going to go. Because I don't have a recording. I'm not going to go get it. It'd be nice. And all of a sudden, this friend that he hadn't seen for a while comes out of the blue and says, Hey, Nunu, thanks so much for that uh, project that you did. <laughs> went, well, I'm sorry it's been so long. Here's the recording. I <laughs> and so my dad was like, wow. So he gave the recording and joined that music ministry. And in the course of time, met my mom, got married oh, through that God. music ministry. And that's why I'm here today. And I got here. <laughs> it's one of those momentous events that had an impact on my personal life. I don't think I would have been here if my dad hadn't, if that friend hadn't have asked my dad to record that piece. <laughs> what an amazing thing, huh? Just, you know what I'm talking about, those, those moments when you reflect and think, what if that hadn't have happened? Another moment in my life like that is when, uh, is actually the reason why I'm here in Utah. Because one day, Alan Taylor happened to Google open-air preaching. And it's because he Googled open-air preaching that, you know, one thing led to another, that he found us online and, and he invited us to come to Utah. If he hadn't have done that, Utah wasn't on my radar. I wasn't coming to Utah. So it's another interesting, momentous event in history in the past that shapes the course of, of one life and many other lives. And then there's moments and events that we marvel at in the past that have an effect upon our lives together. What would the world be like if that hadn't happened? But on a larger scale now, what would things be like in this world? For example, if Mohammed died young before he got his visions, his supposed visions, right? What if, what if there was no Islam? What if there was no Prophet Mohammed? What a different world this world would be, right? So there's these momentous things that happen in history that changed the course of the world forever. What if uh, there was no Protestant Reformation? Luther hadn't have had his revelation. What if there was no nailing of the 95 Thesis on the door of Wittenberg 
cathedral? What if that just didn't happen? Things kind of just kept going on and evolving uh, the way it always was. What difference it would be? Or more secular, what if Hitler had chosen in 1941 to attack Britain instead of Russia, which most historians think was a monumental error of Hitler, right? By opening up two, two fronts to fight on and doing what Napoleon did and having the same results that Napoleon had. What if Hitler had attacked Britain, thereby cutting off the Western Front and not allowing the Allies to do the D-Day invasion, and thereby having a Nazi Germany? What if they had won? How would the world be different? It would be greatly different. We can only wonder, and we can rest assured, brothers and sisters, that God is in control of all those things. That's not all happenstance, but what happens, as we saw in the book of Daniel, happens because God is sovereign and in control of what happens. Now the passage before us, in Galatians 2 that we read, from 1 to 10, is really one unit and one section. And what we see here in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, is one such event and moment in history that has had a profound effect upon the world at large and upon our individual lives. This is something that if it hadn't happened, things would be much different. I don't know if you appreciate what happened here in this passage that we read. This is an, the momentous meeting between Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem, right around 47 AD. And Paul goes up to Jerusalem and he lays before them his gospel that he's been preaching for examination. He lays before them the gospel for confirmation so that they can join hands together and they can say, yes, we're, we're in this together. So that they could confirm he and his gospel, him and his gospel, as legitimate. Imagine if this turned out differently. What if the apostles had said, no, Paul, you're wrong. And these, 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 these Judaizing guys who say that Gentiles need to be circumcised if they're going to be uh, righteous, if they're going to be in Israel, they have to be circumcised and keep the law. What if the apostles had, had said, no, Paul? What if there was a schism between Paul and the other apostles in Jerusalem? How would the world have turned out then, do you think? The Judaizers would have won a profound victory. We would not have the New Testament as we know it if there was a schism between the apostles. And it's probable that none of us would even be saved and be Christians. Because Paul would have been sidelined. And a false gospel would have become the central thing. That would have probably... Uh, just fizzled out or merged back with Judaism or whatnot. Paul himself, we can see in this text, believed that all of his work would have been in vain if the apostles had not confirmed his gospel. He says the truth of the gospel wouldn't have remained if what happened in Jerusalem in 47 AD didn't happen. Isn't this, this is one of those amazing, momentous meetings and events that we're going to consider this morning. We're going to look at this meeting, we're going to ask why it happened, what didn't happen at the meeting, and what did happen at the meeting this morning. And we'll see how important this really is. And just before we dive into the text, I'd like to point one more thing out about this passage, this particular passage we read this morning. Something that most, uh, something that all commentators will point out, all that I read, that this passage is one of the most syn syntactically perplexing passages of Paul in the New Testament. 
That was a syntactically perplexing <laughs> What I mean by that is this is a hard passage to follow grammatically. It's a hard passage to follow in its flow of thought. It's full of parentheses. Parentheses. There's parentheses within parentheses. There's sentences that start before others are finished. This passage is really kind of chaotic and disordered, actually. And the Greek scholars point that out, and one even says this is a shipwreck of grammar. <laughs> I don't know if you notice that even in English it's kind of choppy and hard to follow, even though our translations actually smooth it out somewhat. But the Greek is really syntactically complex and perplexing. Syntax is perplexing. And you know, that might trouble some. They might say, wow, is Paul kind of, what's wrong with Paul? Drinking? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> and it can be troubling for some when they, when they consider that this isn't actually the best written paragraph. It can be troubling for some. Yet for others, this is actually an encouraging sign because it's exactly what we would expect from such a man writing such a letter. What do you mean? Well, because the, the perplexing syntax of this passage actually underscores the genuineness of the content here and the intensity that's in Paul's heart because he's writing with passion. His mind is ablaze. He's almost speaking ahead of himself. He writes something, or he's dictating someone, and he triggers another thought. He's so passionate, his mind is ablaze, that it's just kind of flowing. This isn't him sitting back and, what should I say next? Mm, that doesn't sound right. You know? He's just like, this. he's talking about something that's just burning him up. And so it's just flowing out. And this is actually a good sign. Uh, as Josh Moody points out, I think he's, he points it out so well, he says this, some of our speaking should not be grammatically perfect. I have never heard anything more rhetorically compelling than two people arguing or two lovers wooing. And those who speak only as if they are in a school are not speaking as Paul sometimes spoke and as God's holy writ inspired. It may not be perfect, but when someone is weeping for my soul, I expect a slip or two, just as I would at the bedside of a woman mourning for her husband or a young man telling me that she finally said yes or the Apostle Paul standing up for the gospel through which we can be saved. You catch the gist of what he's saying here? Because he's passionate, because he's weeping, because he's writing large letters, he says, it's not going to come out all right. And that's actually a, a good sign of his intensity and his genuineness. And, and a, there's also the difficulty here in this passage of what Paul is, is trying to get across. Paul's point here in this passage is a really difficult point as well, which makes it difficult what he's saying. He's trying to show that he's got acceptance with the apostles, that the apostles and him are on the same page. But he also, as we saw from last week, wants to maintain a kind of independence from the apostles. So he's really walking the tightrope, as one commentator says, which makes it difficult. Yes, the apostles and I are on the same page. They confirm my gospel. They accepted it. They put their stamp of approval on it. But I don't really need their stamp of approval anyway, but they gave it, you know? And so it's kind of complicated what he's trying to say. And that also adds to the, the perplexing nature of this passage. So having said that about the nature of the passage, let's look at the passage itself. Let's study this in a 
momentous meaning that has affected history, life in this world, and our own individual lives would have been different if this had turned out different. So first of all, why did this meeting take place? Let's look at verse 1. After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now there's some debate about the chronology here. If you look at the book of Acts, Luke records several visits of Paul to Jerusalem. Paul here doesn't record all his visits to Jerusalem, uh, only the ones up to this point in the letter. And there's some debate about what visit to Jerusalem is this. There's two different visits to Jerusalem that are debated. There's a visit in Acts chapter 11. If you remember, this is when Barnabas and, and Paul went up to Jerusalem to provide relief uh, for the, the saints there because of a famine. You remember this one in Acts chapter 11? So they go up to Jerusalem to provide relief for the saints, to, to take an offering there. In Acts chapter 15, you have the famous Jerusalem council. That's when there's the heat of this debate about whether uh, Gentiles need to be circumcised, and Paul and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem, and there's a council that takes place, and the apostles decide that council that no, the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised, and they send out a proclamation from now, depending on which one of these visits we take, chapter 2, verse, chapter 2 here, 1 through 10, will depend on how we understand this statement after an interval of 14 years. So, if this visit here is the Acts 11 famine visit, as I'll call it, then this would be 14 years after his conversion, not after he goes to Syria and Cilicia, as we saw in the last chapter. So he's not saying, then I went to Syria and Cilicia, and then 14 years after Syria and Cilicia, I went to Jerusalem. This would be 14 years after my conversion. And the Greek can actually go either way. If it's the Acts 15 council visit, then it would be 14 years after the visit to Cilicia. Now, it doesn't make a big difference. It's only three years difference. So it's not like this changes about when the meeting happened. It's just a debate about which actual meeting this is. I think it's best, and many other commentators think it's best, to see this visit to Jerusalem as the famine visit and not as the visit to Jerusalem in Acts 15 when the council takes place. There's, well, two reasons. But first, as I said, the Greek can go either way. But here's the two main reasons why a lot of commentators see this as the famine visit. Number one, Paul is giving us a travel log of his visits to Jerusalem. He wants the Galatians to know his interaction with the Jerusalem apostles. He wants to minimize it. He wants to show them I really had minimal contact with them. And he's like, when I got converted, I didn't go to Jerusalem right away. I went to Arabia and I went to Damascus. It wasn't until three years after my conversion that I went to Jerusalem. And I was only there for 15 days. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. Then after 14 years, I went to Jerusalem. So he's giving us a, a, all of his Jerusalem visits so that he can't be accused of getting his gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, if this chapter 2 is the Acts 15 visit, Paul would have, had, would have omitted telling them about his visit to Jerusalem in Acts 11. So he, would have, he, he wouldn't have mentioned one of his visits to Jerusalem, which would have been counter uh, to his point in this section to chronicle all his visits to Jerusalem. So that's one reason. He's, he's telling them his interaction with the Jerusalem apostles. Therefore, he wouldn't omit his visit to Jerusalem in Acts 11. 
The second reason is also compelling, and that is that in the course of the book of Galatians, Paul never once mentions the verdict of the council. So if Acts 15 was passed when Paul wrote Galatians, he would have said, guys, the apostles agree with me. Didn't you get the declaration? Didn't you get the proclamation that came from Jerusalem when we all convened there and discussed this very question? Didn't you hear that they said, no, the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised? He never once uh, makes mention of that. And so many scholars see Galatians as written right before that council, right in the heat of that uh, conflict, and right before the council in Jerusalem next to the So, after an interval of 14 years after his conversion, Paul goes up again to Jerusalem. Now, he mentions for the first time in Galatians that he names his companions. Barnabas he names first. Now, Barnabas was one of the people in Paul's life that was greatly instrumental. It's Barnabas, if you remember, who was the one who was the first guy to believe Paul was actually converted. You remember that? When Paul was trying to, when, when Paul came to Jerusalem finally after three years, most of the people, most of the Christians in Judea said, he's a liar, he's just trying to trick us, he's just trying to haul us off to jail, you know, don't believe him. We know his tactics. And it was Barnabas who said, no, I really think that this man has been converted, and it was Barnabas who stepped in and said, come on, Paul, let's go see the Jerusalem apostles. So it was Barnabas who first accepted Paul and embraced him and brought him to the other Christians in Judea. And you'll remember also it was Barnabas who brought Paul to Antioch. After Paul's 15 days in Jerusalem, he went up to Tarsus. And it was Barnabas who went to Antioch and said, hey, things are really hopping here in Antioch. I'm going to get Paul. And so he went to Tarsus and said, Paul, you got to come to Antioch. You have to be here. This is, this is the place to be. So you can see Barnabas was instrumental in Paul's life in getting him into fellowship with the saints and into that key place in Antioch. I wonder if there was no Barnabas, or if Barnabas hadn't have reached out to Paul, would we know Paul? How influential would Paul be were it not for Barnabas opening the doors for him as a minister of the gospel? Barnabas was one of those monumental people in Paul's life. God puts people in our lives who are instrumental in our conversion and in our progress as Christians. Amen? Amen. It's not all solo, right? God uses people in our lives like Paul was, Barnabas was used in Paul's life by God. Monumental people, instrumental people who shape us and make us the people that we are. And that's God's work. And we give thanks to God for those people. I'm sure, you know, behind every famous Christian that we know, Billy Graham and all those people that we've heard about, there's instrumental, monumental, I mean, history-shaping people that we don't know that God used in their life to shape them, to be the people that they are, without which they wouldn't be the people that they were. Yeah. And so there'll be a lot of wonderful surprises in heaven when people who weren't known are seem to be instrumental in the conversions of how many millions of people or, or whoever, right? There'll be people in our own lives that will give thanks. Thank you for, you know, I praise God for you. I glorify God in you for what you did. Because I didn't even know you, but because of you somehow in the, in the scheme of things, I was saved. Or my life was what it was because of you. I think heaven will be like that. It's full of surprises. 
oh wow, tell me about that, because that influenced me, you know. So God puts these people in our lives. And we give thanks to God for the ones that we do know and for the ones that we don't know. Why does Paul mention Barnabas? Not only because Barnabas was known to the Galatians, Barnabas went with Paul on the missionary journey to Galatia, but probably because the agitators in Galatia were exploiting the weaknesses of Barnabas. And you'll remember in the next section, which we're going to look at next week, Barnabas was one of the guys who played the hypocrite with Peter. And so Barnabas was probably being exploited by the agitators. Even Barnabas doesn't agree with you, Paul. And he's probably mentioning Barnabas here, not only because Barnabas was well known, but because he wants to show Barnabas was with me, he was present when we went to Jerusalem, and the gospel was confirmed by the apostles. He mentions Titus. Titus was an early convert of Paul. Before Paul ever went on a missionary journey, Paul was a preacher of the gospel. Paul didn't start preaching the gospel when he started to travel. That was just when he started to travel. But Paul was a preacher of the gospel, and he preached in Antioch and other places, Damascus, Tarsus. And Titus was an early convert, as Titus chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that he was his true son in the faith. Titus was a Gentile. So early on, Paul was already preaching to Gentiles. It wasn't later on that Paul had the epiphany, hey, you know, we should preach to Gentiles. Right in the beginning, early on, he had the gospel, and he was preaching to the Gentiles. Titus was one of his first converts. And Titus was the guy, was the kind of person, he was, he was one who stuck with Paul throughout the rest of his life. Years and years and years, decades, Titus and Paul were friends. They had a long-lasting relationship right up to the end when Paul finally expired. Those are good relationships, aren't they? How many want long-lasting relationships with people? How many of you just want short-term relationships? Just like one or two years and then see, I'll get new friends. You know? Friends are like food, you just eat them and then you move on. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I want long-lasting relationships. I want relationships like Paul had with Titus. Ones that last for a long time and that grow deeper and deeper and deeper. I pray that God would give us friends like that and that we would be friends like that who see friendship for the long haul. Paul took Titus, this verse says, intentionally as an acid test. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem. Titus, you're coming. As we'll see, as an acid test for the apostles. Because Titus was a Gentile, uncircumcised. And Paul brought him along, brought him along, so that in that momentous meeting it would be very clear what the apostles had to say. Verse 2. Paul tells us why he went up. It was because of a revelation. That means that I didn't go up because I went to learn the gospel or they were summoning me to the principal's office. I went up because of a revelation. If it wasn't for the revelation, I didn't have any reason to go up. I wouldn't have gone up. The revelation is probably, if we take this as Acts 11, it's probably Agabus' prophecy that there was going to be a famine. And so because of this prophecy, Paul goes up with the relief to Jerusalem. But he takes the opportunity in the book of Galatians. And we see here in this verse, that circumcision, we see that circumcision is really the issue that's going on. That's what we're proclaiming and inviting people into. And 
what it shows here is that Christianity is about going to the Gentiles and actually bringing them into righteousness. And becoming a Christian is not a commitment that you make to God. Now, that runs against the grain a little bit, right? Because one thing you hear a lot from Christians is, have you given your life to Jesus? Have you made a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus? Have you made Jesus Lord of your life? And you name it. But conversion to Christianity is the opposite of Judaism, Judaism conversion, which is all about commitment, which is all about you. Here's what you need to do when you become a Jew. You better, you better not become a Jew, man, because this is probably going to just send you to hell and curse the rest of the nation. <laughs> right? but I don't think this is going to be a good thing. Christian, conversion to Christianity is not a commitment you make. It is an invitation to drink. It is an invitation to drink. A night and day difference, brothers and sisters, between these two ideas and these two worlds. One's about what you need to do. One is about your promises that you are going to make. One is about you coming to Mount Sinai and saying, I'll do it. But the other is about an invitation to drink. The other, Christianity, is about God's promises to you. Christianity is not about your works. It's about God's works. It's about what God has done, not what you are to do. Christianity is about faith, not about you coming and committing to the only commandments and works, which we know doesn't work and won't make you righteous. Faith is all about putting your trust in the promises of God and in what He has done for you. It's an invitation to drink when you become a Christian. Come to the waters and drink freely. All who are thirsty, come, eat, buy, without money and without price, milk and bread that God has provided. God will come in to save you. God will save you. He did the work. You're a sinner. 